from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. California is facing many challenges, not the least of which is the impact of climate change on a growing population. A recent report commissioned by Next10, which is a nonpartisan, uh, independent nonpartisan organization focused on innovation, uh, using innovation for California's future, uh, was done by the Pacific Institute, another nonprofit, and they took a look at the connection between energy and water, and they came up with some pretty surprising findings. Our guest is the founder of Next10, Noel Perry. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Thank you very much, Mark. So, um, listen, let's, why don't you first describe this kind of nexus between water, energy, and climate change? Sure. Well, uh, if we went back uh, maybe hundreds of years uh, and we lived by a stream or a brook and we wanted some water, we'd get a pail and we'd transport it. Uh, there would be no greenhouse gas emissions from that. So the nexus of water, energy, and greenhouse gas emissions has to do with that intersection of the fact that if we're going to use water, we need to move it. And if we're going to move it, we need energy. And when we move water using energy, there's a fair chance, unless it's clean energy, it's going to make greenhouse gas emissions. So that's yeah, yeah people don't understand that there's a pretty big connection between water and, and energy. But let me ask you this. So let's put this in context. How much energy does it take um, to produce the water that California needs? Amazingly, 20% of the energy that's used in California is used to transport and move water. Well, that, that's, that's, that's an amazing number. So, you know, it, it's, it's ubiquitous in our lives. Water's, you know, obviously a very important part of our lives. Let's talk about residential use for a second. Um, how has that changed over time and what are the energy implications? Right, well, it's very interesting to know that 
uh, a study that was done of water between 2005 and 2015 showed that the amount of water used in California went, went uh, down by 25%. That, that's, that is, I think that would probably surprise a lot of people, um, but it actually went down. Um, let's talk, you know, about ag. The other, another big water user, you know, the Public Policy Institute of California has said that there are 9 million acres of farmland that are irrigated, representing roughly 80% of all the water used by uh, homes and businesses in the state. Uh, what is, how has ag's demand for water changed over time and what are the implications there? Well, just like on the residential urban side, uh, interestingly enough, since 1980, uh, the amount of water for ag has remained flat. And uh, even though it's remained flat, we have produced some uh, very amazing agricultural goods, specialty goods, but the amount of water has remained the same. So, so the, in essence, the, the value that they're getting for the water, what they're selling their crops for, it's actually gone higher. That's right. Yeah, and then, and then I think if you talk to most farmers, they'll tell you that they use all kinds of technology to limit their use of water uh, to be more efficient and effective in their use of water. But you know, groundwater, you know, that's an energy use, right? I mean, you, pumping the water out of the ground is going to take some energy. Uh, absolutely, and um, a little bit later in the show, we may talk a little bit further about some of the challenges for agriculture, and that's one because wastewater as uh, not wastewater but groundwater as the aquifers have dried up or gone lower the pumps have had to work harder to go deeper and right. that's one of the big challenges for ag in california over the next 20 years yeah yeah so you note in your report um or pacific institute notes in their report that it takes energy to create an adequate supply of water and there's lots of things we're talking about extraction we're talking about wells i mean groundwater right. conveyance i think canals treatment for drinking water and then distribution to both residents uh, and, and farms. What uses the most energy in residential and what uses the most in, in ag? Sure. So uh, in uh, residential, it's heating water. Uh, so that's the end use of water. But with agriculture, it's opposite. So with agriculture, you've got to extract it, you know, whether that's groundwater or whether it's surface water, and then you have to convey it. But in the end, maybe the way you're going to distribute it is through irrigation. And that's uh, much less energy intensive than it is on the energy side. I mean, on the residential side, because you have to heat the water. And that's one of the themes of the report, that if we can, we can reduce emissions in California by moving towards using heat pumps in other ways uh, instead of using natural gas. Yeah. Um, so you know, up next, we're going to talk about the, the urban water use, uh, residentials uh, and commercial. Um, what's the demand for water? How does it impact energy use? And how does all of that impact climate change? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, as our guest has mentioned, per capita urban or residential and commercial use of water has remarkably declined significantly in the last 20 years. In fact, from 2000 to 2015, it declined by 25%. We're talking with F. Noel Perry, who is with Next10, about a recent report they commissioned with Pacific Institute, analyzing how the state's demand for water will impact its demand for energy. So let's talk about urban water. Um, when we talk about urban water, we're talking about everything from you know, factories to residential use. You've analyzed three different scenarios in terms of changes of, of urban water demand. Um, what are they and what factors are most likely to drive the demand for urban water? 
Sure. So what we assumed here is different levels of demand. So there was three different scenarios. Uh, the first scenario is a high case scenario where uh, per capita demand goes up, uh, where we have uh, an increase in recycling, uh, where we have an increase in desalinization, along with uh, increases in population. The mid case uh, is one where it's the status quo, where it's the same level of demand. And the one that's most interesting and the one that we're most hopeful for as we move uh, between now and 2035 is the low case. And the low case assumes a decrease in per capita demand, along with most importantly, energy conservation, along with water conservation. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but let's talk about the, you know, the supply of water for urban users. Where is it most likely to come from? Sure. Well, the water will continue to come from surface water and groundwater, uh, primarily from surface water. And what is surface water? Surface water is water, fresh water that comes from the mountains, from streams, from lakes, from uh, the Sierras. So that is the primary source of water uh, for urban usage. Uh, but we also have water that comes from groundwater uh, that we pump up that is mostly used for farms. And that, of course, it, it varies depending on what hydraulic region you're in, where you're getting the, the water from. It's interesting to say that, you know, the, you, the water, uh, the supply is in the north, but the demand is in the south. Um, that's always been California's issue. Um, you know, because of ag land in the valley and then the population in, in Southern California. So how the different water scenarios for urban users impact um, the need for, for energy over time? Sure. Uh, that's a really interesting question. And that kind of goes to the heart of the report. And uh, we're looking at a couple of different scenarios here. One scenario is where there's a very significant increase in demand for water and, and another where there's less of a demand for water. And I want to uh, kind of look at my notes quick here, uh, Mark, because I want to get this right. But if in fact uh, the bad scenario, which is a very larger increase in the need for water, what will happen is that water demand might go up by 24% by 2035. We would also uh, have a result of a 21% increase in electricity usage along with a 25% increase in natural gas. However, on the positive side, uh, if the state does significant conservation and efficiency, electricity usage will go down 19%, emissions will go down 41%, and natural gas will go down 16%. Well, that, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, by the way, sources of uh, urban water, which, which one uses the most energy in terms of sources? Yeah, in terms of sources, um, by essentially the water that we use to heat uh, residentially, that uses the most amount of energy. We also have desalinization and recycling, which also uses a lot of water. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were talking in your report, um, you indicated that residential heating um, is a major consumer of, of energy. So if that's true, if you, we convert from natural gas to electric water heaters for urban use, um, what impact is that going to have? And what impact is that going to have on energy demand? And what impact is that going to have ultimately on greenhouse gas emissions? Sure, it is going to have a very significant positive impact by reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And what we're talking about here is that 
Most houses in California are for our domestic water use to have hot water and to have hot water to wash dishes and also to do our heating. Uh, we have natural gas. We use natural gas and that is a that creates greenhouse gas emissions. On the other hand, if we use a heat pump and heat our water that way, it's more efficient and we're using whatever the combination is for the utility that we have for so for example for PG&E, there's a lot of renewables so it's going to be cleaner energy. Um, let me ask you this, um, in terms of tankless um, hot water heaters, does that make any difference or is that what you're talking when you talk about electric? Yeah, we're talking about two systems. You have tankless where uh, it's kind of hot water on demand and that's those are very efficient. And then the other, the other ways of uh, heating water for houses are these heat pumps that you can put inside or outside and they use electricity. Okay, very good. Well, up next, we're gonna talk about ag's water use uh, and what impact it has on energy. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry with Next 10 that commissioned a report recently with the Pacific Institute on the future of California's water, energy, and climate nexus. In short, how do we deliver water in a way that will be most efficiently and uh, effectively uh, has less of an impact on greenhouse gases in essence? So let's talk a little about ag um, and the use of water, their use of water. Your report focused specifically on the energy uh, required to supply the Central Valley's ag water needs, and that represents about 80% of the state's total ag water use. In, in your analysis, uh, like your analysis with urban water users, you found you ran it on three different scenarios, high, medium, low, in essence. Um, what did you find? Sure. In all three scenarios, there was a reduction uh, in the amount of water, and that reduction was between 2 and 5%. And this was estimated between 2015 and 2035. And one of the most important issues with regard to agricultural water is groundwater and how much that water is pumped out of the aquifer. And as the aquifers, the water in the aquifers go lower and the pumps have to go deeper to find that water, that is a challenge. And you also think about Sigma, which is the, the state uh, requirement that by 2040, uh, that that groundwater that they even out the the, the taking and the supply and demand um, that's also going to have another effect on uh, on ag in, in, a, in a big way obviously so you know when we come to water we're looking at the supply of water for Central Valley's ag needs um, where is that supply likely to come from and will that demand be increasing decreasing or remain the same over time sure um, like urban water uh, most of the water is going to come from surface water and also groundwater. And there probably will be less water over time. Uh, I think we all know about the significant drought that we're experiencing here in California, uh, but that is a challenge. And that is what the assumptions are gonna be that there will be uh, less water and that there'll be less deliveries. Yeah, I was just going to mention that in terms of the deliveries from the canals, you're expecting it's it's not going to increase. It's, it's probably going to go down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, how big of an impact uh, will these predicted declines in water, um, ag water use have on, on, on energy usage? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, the declines um, will be between uh, 2 and 5%. And now there will be a similar impact for energy usage and also for greenhouse gas emissions. 
And so that is something that will absolutely be positive as we look to the future with the caveat that I just mentioned about groundwater and whether or not the pumps are going to go deeper uh, into the aquifers to take water out, because that will absolutely increase the amount of energy usage and the greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, it seems, you know, over the, over the last certainly 20, 30 years, I mean, they just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper wells. And, and obviously, it takes a lot of energy to pump all that water out. And then they use, I mean, they have to irrigate their crops. Uh, they use a lot of water. The other issue that's going on with ag is, you know, replacing seasonal crops or, or annual crops with trees that have to be watered all the time. And so whether you have a drought or not, they've got to be watered. That has another impact on, on groundwater and, and all the rest of it. So can, can one assume that there's going to be a decline in greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with uh, the use of, of water by Central Valley agriculture going to 2035? Uh, I think that we can make that assumption uh, because as we mentioned, the uh, researchers found that there'll be a two to 5% reduction uh, in the amount of water used for ag. And at the same time, uh, there'll be a reduction in terms of the energy usage. And with regard to greenhouse gas emissions, we will see some reductions there. Again, with a caveat being, what are we gonna do with groundwater and how deep are we gonna go? Yeah, I think one of the things though, that people are probably saying, well, wait a second, you know, what about diesel pumps? Um, don't they emit greenhouse gases? And I think one of the things you, you noted in your report that you didn't include diesel pumps in, in this situation because they're very small, becoming a very, very small part of, of, of the pumps in, in ag for water. Increasingly, the state has moved toward and farmers have moved toward, you know, electrification of, of those groundwater pumps. So up next, we're gonna take a look at some of your policy recommendations to deal with water and energy use in California going forward. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry with Next10, an independent nonpartisan organization focused on harnessing innovation to improve California's future. They commissioned a report recently with the Pacific Institute about this intersection between energy use and water use. So I wanna ask you about uh, your analysis on urban water users. What steps need to be taken in your mind to you know, reduce the amount of energy and therefore greenhouse gas emitted um, through the use of uh, urban water use? A first step, which is simple but also profound, has to do with water conservation and actually using less water uh, combined with that is energy efficiencies in the house, uh, for example, and in particular having to do with how we heat water. Uh, we heat water in the home for domestic use and also for heating. And if we can move off of natural gas and move towards using heat pumps so that we use a source of clean energy, that will be very important. It, se it seems, I mean, you talked a lot about energies. One of the things that people are saying is that we're going to oversubscribe, um, you know, electric energy, you know, electric cars, electric pumps. So that's, that's an issue. And some people do talk about, you know, natural gas as a transition uh, fuel um, going forward. So that's another separate issue. But let me ask you this. Uh, what's often overlooked in this whole process is treating water. Um, so what can be done to reduce the amount of energy and therefore greenhouse gases associated with treating water? Sure. Treating water is really important because as many people know, we have to treat the water before we send it to your houses for you to be able to drink it. And one of the ways in which we can reduce uh, the usage of energy and also the greenhouse gas emissions is to use demand response. 
And what that means specifically is that for a, uh, for a treatment center that is treating water to use water and make their machines and pumps work at certain times of the day when there's clean energy available and they can get lower rates, that will be very significant in terms of making a difference in terms of treatment centers and reducing emissions. It seems like they would be doing that anyway. It seems just logical that they would be doing it off peak, um, but good suggestion. Um, let's turn our attention to Central Valley Ag uh, and, and their water needs. What can be done to reduce the amount of energy needed for Valley agriculture um, to get its water needs met? Sure, again, going back to groundwater, one of the most important things is that when the pumps are used to pump water from aquifers, that the rules are followed in terms of how much and how deep they pump, because the more they pump, the deeper they go, the more energy usage there's gonna be and the greater uh, greenhouse gas emissions there will be. You know, I, I'm looking at, at, at your report and one of the things that kind of stands out is this, and you've repeated several times about the need for good information and, and you know, it's kind of garbage in, garbage out. You know, is there, are you, is the state or whoever collecting the right information so we can really analyze this problem? So what is your concern about the data that's being collected in this area? I think there can be improvements. And uh, as we move towards 2035 into the future, it's gonna be really, really important that the water managers across the state, both at the state level and the local level, have the right amount of data and information to make smart decisions that can reduce the amount of energy and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so that means the energy regulatory people talking with the water regulatory people uh, so that we can get the right decisions here to reduce the amount of water that's used in the greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, everybody's got to be talking, you know, singing from the same hymnal or at least speaking the same language for sure. Exactly. Um, before we get to your, the bottom line, I wanted to ask you, you, you did mention that you commissioned the Pacific Institute uh, to do this report. Why the Pacific Institute? Uh, the Pacific Institute, because they have a really, really wonderful reputation in the state of California doing water research. They've been doing it for over 20 years. They do research not only in California, but across the country. And uh, it really is an honor for us to work with the Pacific Institute uh, to do this report. And it's something that we've wanted to do for a number of years. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, we, we we're talking about this whole nexus between water and energy. A lot of people, frankly, it's just something they don't think about, right? You turn on the tap, it, it, water comes out. You, you see the trees that the, the farmers are, are growing, you just assume the water's going to get there somehow. And you're now talked about this, but I'm wondering, you know, the state's done a lot of work on, you know, greenhouse, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Have they been factoring this whole water energy nexus connection into that analysis? I think they have. And going back to the top, we know that 20% of the energy that's used in California is used to move, transport, and treat water. So water is a very important part of the climate goals for California in terms of looking at reducing emissions. And the state of California, the California Air Resources Board, is very aware and working to improve the reductions in emissions from the water sector in California. We've only got about 15 seconds left. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that we need to conserve water and we need to be more efficient in how we use it.
The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Next 10 is not new to the area of energy use and its impact on greenhouse gases. In fact, a couple of years ago, we spoke with F. Noel Perry about the future adoption of EVs, electric vehicles. Given the dramatic move toward electric vehicles, we thought it might make some sense to revisit that conversation. The story begins back in 2012. California has set a goal of 5 million electric vehicles on state roads by 2030. Is that possible? We'll ask F. Noel Perry, founder of Next 10, that recently commissioned a report on the road ahead for zero emission vehicles in California. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. So will electric vehicles be as common in 20 years as cell phones are today? That's a real possibility, according to our guest, F. Noel Perry, founder of Next10, who commissioned a detailed report entitled The Road Ahead for Zero Emission Vehicles in California, Market Trends and Policy Analysis. Quite a mouthful. Welcome right. to the Matter Report. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honor to be here. Um, so first, electric vehicles, EVs, that's an all-encompassing term. Let's break it down. What are the different categories of EVs? Sure. So electric vehicles are described as pure electric vehicles along with hybrid vehicles such as for example a plug-in Prius or a Volt. Also we have a term called zero emission vehicle and I'll refer to those as ZEVs uh, during our conversation. And for the state of California when the state of California talks about trying to achieve its uh, electric vehicle goal it's really this ZEV goal and the ZEV goal includes one more area in addition to elect pure electric vehicles and hybrids and that's hydrogen cars. A fuel cell? Exactly. Okay. So historically California's led the nation uh, in EV sales. Uh, are they becoming more mainstream? They are and let me explain that California uh, today has approximately 340,000 zero emission vehicles and if you look at the percent uh, of market share of all cars in California, that's approximately 4.5%. And the growth has been very significant over the last uh, few years. And um, the question about mainstream, it's starting to move towards mainstream. Yeah, I, I noticed in, in your report, it actually jumped the whole percentage point uh, from last year to this year. So it's moving up. But just to put things in perspective, I also read another report that was talking about the series, a Ford series uh, pickup. Um, right. And they actually, that one, the Ford Series pickup, actually has more people buying them than all EVs put together. So put it in perspective, one of the things you, we do see is that in the urban areas, uh, EVs right. are very popular. In the rural areas, it's the pickup trucks. But, um, right. but anyway, so let's talk about how California uh, compares globally. How do we compare with other nations? We're almost a nation state. That's right. We're, what are we, the sixth largest the economy, economy in the right. world? Uh, so uh, California is a international leader. Uh, with electric vehicles. However, there is a lot of significant movement around the world towards electric vehicles. China, India, England, France, and the Netherlands 
have all created plans to phase out uh, the internal combustion engine over the next 20, 30 years. That's very significant. As a matter of fact, that was the genesis for this report. This happened at the end of 2017, and we were sitting around at Next10, and we said, this is really, you know, is this a turning point? Uh, combined with that, we have the car manufacturers such as Volkswagen, Volvo, um, Nissan, they are also working towards electrifying their fleets. Yeah, they're moving in that direction. China, of course, is, is a big push here, too. A lot of 5%, uh, I think, in China uh, fleet is, is electric. So what does all this mean for California, this I move think, toward electric vehicles? I think it means that California will continue to be uh, the international, one of the international leaders. Uh, we are the leader in America. Uh, we are the leader in terms of uh, technology and also policies uh, at the Capitol. And assuming that we continue to push things forward uh, and, then, and don't have any major hiccups, we are going to be a world leader with electric vehicles. So originally the state had this goal of, uh, what was it, 1.5 million ZEVs uh, by 2025, and they're increasing that. I mean, 1.5 million, that's a lot of cars. That's a lot of cars, but we feel confident that that's going to be achieved. Our report indicated that we're on track to achieve the 1.5 million ZEVs by uh, 2025. When that original goal came out, they were talking about a 35% increase uh, annual growth from 2013 to 2025 to hit that target. You're actually right. going faster than that, so you don't even need that amount. It's, it's quite a bit less than 20% annual Absolutely. now? Absolutely. That's correct. So we need to hit about 20% per year going forward, and it is definitely doable. Okay, so up next we're going to talk about some of the factors that are driving the adoption of EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry, founder of Next10, a nonprofit focused on innovation and the intersection of the economy, the environment, and quality of life issues in California, about a recent report that Next10 did about the market growth potential of EVs, electric vehicles. So a big issue, obviously, is price. Um, what is the current cost of electric vehicles compared to regular internal combustion gas uh, cars? Sure. At this point, Electric vehicles are still more expensive than fossil-fueled cars, but these prices are coming down. Our study looked at the life cycle costs of about 17 different models, both EVs and uh, fossil-fueled cars, and what we found is that the Nissan and the smart car are becoming more price competitive with fossil-fueled cars because one of the major things important about electric vehicles is that they have very minimal maintenance costs and the fuel costs are less than a gas-powered car. You know, one of the things you mentioned in your report, you, you cite some uh, statistics and some surveys that talk about, you know, the, the cost of cars, but they're doing it based on, uh, it was a Rostad and Ferry, I believe, uh, was the name of it, 2014 study, that they're saying average use of 12,330 miles. Exactly. But then when you look at U.S. Department of Transportation, saying that's not California. California, we like our cars, and we drive a right. lot more. It's like something like 14,435 miles. So the That's numbers correct. are actually, are better or worse with the, the higher number of miles traveled in California? Yeah, so we did the report, uh, we did the study looking at the 14,000 okay. miles that is assumed to be the average uh, travel uh, amount of Californians, and the electric vehicles are becoming more and more competitive when you look at them over five, uh, five years, 10 years, 15 years. They begin to pay They're for themselves. They're not there yet. They're not there yet. We have a ways to go. 
but they're absolutely more competitive and continuing to be more competitive. It's interesting. Bloomberg uh, Finance said that uh, electric vehicle is going to be cost competitive by 2025. They should be cost competitive. Exactly, exactly. So according to your report, the biggest factors driving the price of EVs are the cost of research and development and the cost of batteries. So let's talk about the cost of research and development. Why can't car makers just pay, piggyback on what they already know about you know, four wheels and an engine uh, with internal combustion, just apply that to the electric vehicles? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think the way to answer that is to look at how long we've had gas-powered cars. We've had gas-powered cars for over 100 years. Uh, that's many years of innovation. That's many years of creating more efficiencies. And electric cars are very, very different. One of the major ways they're different is that they have uh, about 2,000, uh, I think about 18, 1,890 less moving parts. So we have a, a different uh, product here. And the R&D is hugely important. The battery costs, as you mentioned, is also hugely important. Yeah, so we're going to talk about battery costs as a huge driver. Um, how long did these batteries last? That's a great question. and. I can only answer generally because we didn't really go deeply into that into our report, but I would just, it's maybe kind of a cop-out, but I just say that for different vehicles, they last different amounts of time. Some are more efficient than others. Some are more efficient than others, but the important thing that we learned in that report was that the cost of batteries has gone down 74% over the last six years. Yeah, from 2010 to 2016, a drop of 74%. That's, that's pretty significant. It's, so to, it's very big. So to replace a battery, getting to be less expensive. Absolutely. Um, so what about the supply constraints? You know, batteries have to be put together and they, they require things like cobalt, lithium, graphite. Um, I assume those prices are really starting to spike now. Um, what effect will that have on battery prices? Right, so the, the supply constraints that you allude to relate more to political happenings in different countries of origin from where these products come from. We're talking about cobalt, we're talking about lithium. And, and Congo is, is a big producer of, of cobalt. Exactly, and so there are different battery manufacturers that are looking at different materials, alternative materials to be able to make batteries without some of these other uh, products that these other materials that we're talking about and that should make a difference in terms of not having that supply constraint over time. You know, according to your report, it says the price of uh, lithium ion batteries today is about $200 per kilowatt hour down from $1,200 um, two decades ago and they're expecting that price to drop to $100 by the early 2020s. So a big drop in the cost of, of batteries. Absolutely. So and, that's that, and as you said, that's the main driver of the cost of an electric So if vehicle. things are going so well, do we need government incentives? Has the market matured so we don't need government incentives anymore? That's a great question. And for the time being, for the near term, I think government incentives uh, continuing will be a good thing. But eventually the market's going to mature over the next five or so years to the point where we don't need these incentives. However, on the infrastructure side, to have government and utilities involved in helping to uh, fund and create and create policies for the creation of infrastructure, charging stations, charging stations right. that, that's important and that's an important role for them to play. Okay, well, we're going to talk about more about that in a minute. We're also going to talk about some of the performance issues surrounding EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry, a founder of Next10, about the future of electric vehicles in California. And for California to meet its air quality goals, electric vehicles are going to have to become as commonplace today in 20 years as cell phones are today. Will that happen? Um, range anxiety. 
Uh, that sounds like a, that's a loaded term, but it's been a significant barrier, barrier to consumer adoption. What is the typical range of electric vehicles and has it uh, improved over time? Sure, range anxiety is absolutely a concern of people who are considering buying an electric vehicle and range distances have gone down and down and down over the last few years. And so if we were to take an average amount for a pure electric vehicle, I would say it's 80 miles up to over 200. Uh, I recently bought a uh, Chevy Bolt, that's with a B, B-O-L-T, and the range is approximately 238 miles. And we know that the Tesla uh, gets more than that. Well, it's interesting. A lot of people think, oh, I need a car to go 200 miles. But I was reading in your report, 87% of consumers' daily use is less than that, less than 80 miles. So for a car getting around town, electric vehicle, even though it only has a range of 80 miles, which a lot of them do, it still will satisfy most people's needs for their daily commute. Right, and that's what the education needs to happen on the part of electric vehicle makers to show consumers that it's a good chance that an electric vehicle will work for them for their daily driving habits. People are just worried about being stranded, of course, and that's we're going to talk a little bit about infrastructure in a moment. What about consumer choice? How many EV models are out there to, for consumers to choose from? Sure. There's 150 electric vehicle models around the world. China offers 75 models. In California, there's 25 to 30 models uh, in the major metropolitan areas. But unfortunately, in the rest of the U.S., for the most part, there are seven or fewer electric vehicle models available, and that's what's going to be changing and increasing over time, we hope. Now, your report says that there were 25 electric vehicles introduced in China in 2016 alone, so a big increase, and that also impacts purchasing, right? People have more choices, more likely that they're going to buy one of these cars. Another big issue is convenience, and that is the time it takes to recharge an EV. That's a big issue. It's been a major uh, barrier to adoption. What is the current state of these public charging stations? Sure. The amount of time that it takes to charge an electric vehicle varies significantly. Uh, for the Tesla with the supercharges, it can be under an hour. And then for others, it might be three to four hours. And for other cars, it might be six to eight hours. And for other electric vehicles, it might be an overnight charge. And as we talked earlier, it's very, very important, and this is happening, charging times need to go down for convenience so that the incentivization for the consumer is greater. You know, it's interesting that majority of EVs are charged at home. So it's actually, you plug it in at night, who cares, right? Exactly. But um, there's a lot of renters out there in California with the price of housing, a lot of renters, particularly in the urban areas. What is the state doing to address that problem? Sure. Uh, that's a very important issue because probably half, a little, little less than half of Californians are renters, uh, many of them in multi-dwelling units, and it's uh, almost impossible for them, uh, if they don't work with their landlord, to have a charging station. So I know that the state is looking at different policies to try to create the possibility for this, and this is an area that is going to require some innovation in terms of policy thinking on the state. And just, just to, I was reading the report, I found something very interesting in it, and it was talking about level two charging stations that take two to four hours to charge a car, a cost between $1,000 and $2,000 essentially to, to create these stations. But if you do a fast charging station, it's a lot more expensive, $14,000 to $91,000 um, for Correct. that saving time. So Correct. do you think there's going to be kind of a new supercharging technology out there that's going to change things? Honda is working on a supercharging 
technology with some new batteries that they're coming up with that apparently can be can reduce the amount of charging to I don't exactly know whether it's 30 minutes or less than 30 minutes. It was actually less than 30 minutes in your report. Like, less than 30 minutes. Correct. That's pretty fast. That's fast. I think it goes down as, as low as 15 minutes. Right. 15 go in minutes. and get a cup of coffee. You know, <laughs> check your Twitter feed or whatever, and, and your car's exactly. ready to go. Exactly. So that's pretty fast. You know, one thing you mentioned, I want to just touch on this before we end this segment, and that is maintenance. Um, it seems like you're talking about the number of moving parts of an internal combustion engine gas car versus an electric vehicle. Seems like EVs would have a distinct advantage over gas engines because of that, in terms of maintenance costs. Absolutely. As I mentioned, I recently bought a Bolt, and I'm sitting in the dealer uh, room uh, talking to the gentleman, and he presents a contract. The contract was only for tires. <laughs> <laughs> that was my maintenance contract for tires. As I said, uh, there's like, what did I say, 1,890 approximate moving parts for a, uh, for an, for a, fuel, a fuel vehicle. And so there's only a few for an electric car, so that is a distinct advantage. Yeah, interesting. Well, next we're going to talk about some of the public policy issues involved with the adoption of EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Mann Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry of Next 10 about the state's push to get 5 million uh, EVs on California roads in the next decade. So what are other countries doing when it comes to electric vehicles? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, there is a movement around the world of major economies around the world towards planning for electric vehicles and kind of phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles. We talked earlier about China and India and France and England and the Netherlands, and so there is a very big push around the world. There's actually a, a push even recently about diesel engines in Germany. Uh, they're trying to phase those out as well, um, at least within certain cities that have air pollution problems. Sure. You know, you, you report states that California is on pace uh, to meet its goal of 1.5 million electric cars by 2025, but Governor Brown recently upped the ante um, and announced a goal of putting 5 million EVs on state roads by 2030. Difficult or impossible? Sure, I'll just mention that uh, the governor threw a curveball at us because we were all ready to come out with our report uh, on the following Monday, and then he comes out Thursday and changes it to five million. Okay, um, but we are confident that the five million goal is doable. Uh, it's not going to be uh, that easy. However, if we continue to build the infrastructure that we need, that's going to be critical. If the cost of EVs goes down, if the range goes up, if the number of charging stations available goes up, if the number of models become uh, in increase in number, that's going to be, be really important. And as you alluded to at the beginning of the program, we talked about smartphones mm -hmm. and the S-curve. Certain advanced technologies sometimes do not grow. Uh, in a linear or incremental way, they do an S-curve. And so it is possible that in 20 years or so, 30 years, electric cars will be ubiquitous it, like smartphones. It's just funny, you know, my, my, my daughter, who's 12, uh, I showed her a rotary phone. She had no idea. How, do you, how does this thing even work? And it's funny, because you grow up with that, and it's changed, technology is just so rapidly. Uh, it's changing, it's uh, a future shock, right? Um, so what is the state doing to hit those EV targets? Sure. Well, one thing I should have mentioned with regard to the governor's announcement is that uh, they are looking at putting $2.5 billion towards the creation of new charging stations, uh, essentially 250,000 total charging stations by, by 2030. 
That's really important. And uh, the state is working to, utilities are working to increase the infrastructure for charging stations. Uh, there are different pools of money that have been used over time to create infrastructure. So it's happening from a number of different quarters. And there, there are incentives out there. State has incentives anywhere between $1,500 and $2,500. The federal government, at least now, right. has incentives for $7,500 for these cars. It brings that price down. Um, so there are public policies in California that are helping the development of this charging infrastructure. What are some of the specific places where they're getting the money to increase this infrastructure? We've got the governor doing his thing, but we've also got Volkswagen settlement. There's some money coming from that. Right. Can you explain some of these other yeah, sources? Yeah, so the Volkswagen settlement was for $800 million. So over the next 10 years, Volkswagen is obligated to spend that amount of money, $800 million, on creating the infrastructure for electric vehicles in California. And there was a state bill passed a few years ago that created funds to help build infrastructure. Certain air quality boards around right. California are working to uh, help with the uh, incentivization of EVs. So the money's coming from different quarters and will probably be increasing. Yeah. Um, so you note that all these changes have implications for the state's infrastructure and the electrical grid. What are some of the public policy issues for infrastructure and for the electrical grid? Sure. Just talking first about the grid, the grid is hugely important. It's kind of a black box for a lot of us, very mm -hmm. hard to understand. But the fact of the matter is, as electric vehicles become more ubiquitous around the state, we're going to be able to, we have to be able to supply that energy uh, affordably and also reliable. So I would just say that in general, and I know that there are different studies. Next is going to be working on a study on this, the interaction between the uh, the EVs and the grid. We're going to be coming out with that later in this year. But there's a number of people looking at this, and the and the rates are important too. You know, in terms but of also when the, you there's charge. implications here for fuel taxes too and roads. If electric vehicles aren't paying gas tax, where's the money coming to keep our roads maintained? Right. Absolutely. The the funding of transportation projects in California comes from the gas tax. Uh, for the most part, electric vehicles don't pay that gas tax. So there's going to take some innovation in Sacramento to figure out how do we make sure that we have this funding for transportation in California as EVs become more widespread. Because they were talking about, in, I know in Oregon they were doing some studies on charging your per mile use. So it doesn't matter right. whether it's a gas car or electric car, you're paying for the use of the roads. Exactly. And so exactly. California might have to look at something like that as well in the future? Exactly. That's, that's very important. So you think it's going to happen? So are we going to have 5 million vehicles by 2030? I think that the S-curve that I referred to earlier in terms of this kind of growth for electric vehicles, that's absolutely possible. We don't know as we sit here whether or not that's going to happen, but things seem to indicate it's going in that direction. Yep. We know that prices are coming down. We know that range is going up. We know that more models are available. There's greater infrastructure. So the next car may be an electric vehicle. I want to thank F. Noel Perry from Next10 for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org.
The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.